it's important to remember that the Buddhist teachings and the practice is psychological. It's not uh, talking about the creation of the world as a kind of as the original creation story or the this, this kind of approach is, is was deliberately avoided by the Buddha. We're not talking about Adam and Eve or the when the world began as a, as a history or as myth. So when we talk about the end of the world, we're not talking about the destruction of the planet Earth. It's the psychological end of the world that we create out of ignorance. So when we, when Buddhists talk about ending the world, it sounds to the, to the uh, Western mind like we're annihilationists. We're out to destroy the world or just get out of it and, uh, because we, we think it's bad and uh, we're just trying to get away from it, destroy the world, or let the world cease so that there's nothing left. Because our minds very much are dualistically conditioned and our, our values are very much based on materialistic values, materialistic science, and the respect for history, facts and statistics. So that our tendency to interpret these, uh, say that oftentimes the Buddhist teachings come out in a rather uh, unpleasant form in, in the Western world because uh, we can be accused of being annihilationists. What about eternal life and love and, and uh, the wonder and the beauty of the universe? Is it all just, you know, with the flowers, they just came out of ignorance and they're, and, uh, they're somehow to be despised for that? Are they just there to, to tempt us, to want us to desire them, and insidious <laughs> enemies sitting there on the shrine? So I'll give them a second glance and, and lose my mindfulness for a minute and get filled with desire to possess them. Is that what the flowers are for? And the sunset and the trees and the, the beauties and the wonder of Universal system, universal system that we can witness to and observe in these in these forms in these human bodies. Is it evil and wicked, and we've just got to fight against it and not notice it and deny it and reject it, suppress it? Is that what the end of the world is? Well, to to life affirming people then Buddhism does sound like the Buddhist monk is uh, the discipline and the, all that is just so that the Buddhist monk will not be tempted there's so many temptations on the sensual realm that you just keep your eyes down don't look at a woman whatever you do don't enjoy your meal whatever you do just eat and say chewing chewing gulp gulp <laughs> And if you, you happen to enjoy for one brief moment a, a taste of uh, sweet cake or something, then you, you, you have to feel guilty about it. You, you're going to probably get reborn in the next life as some kind of creature 
just with an uncontrollable de desire for sweet cakes. Or a sexual desire, is that something really terrible and we've just got to, to really fight it? And it's such a, a kind of dominant uh, energy in the human realm that we've just got to hold it back at all costs. Fight it, resist it, suppress it, conquer it. And this is very much from the Western attitude, isn't it, of conquering nature. I mean, we. You don't hear uh, in Asian societies talking in such aggressive and grandiose ways, do you? I mean, I don't think uh, in China or in India or countries that Asia or in Thailand, these countries would even think in those terms of that I'm going, that we're going to conquer nature. And yet, in the Western world, we we can talk very much in a very confident way that we've conquered nature. Of course, that hurricane in October was, was a big slap in the face of the British, wasn't it? It was like a real spanking, wasn't it? All those protected trees with preservation orders on them were just blown over. Mother Nature wins again, doesn't it? We didn't win that one. The Americans conquered the moon, didn't they? They went up there and they conquered it stuck a little flag on it. <laughs> Big deal. <isn't> it? <laughs> That's called conquering the moon. Now the psycholo psychology of Buddhism is the world is the world that we that we're uh, letting see the cessation of the world is the world that comes from avicca bhajaya sankara. That's uh, avicca, not knowing the truth. We create sankaras out of ignorance, <coughs> and and these are our prejudices, biases, views, and opinions that come out of an unawakened on, uh, and lack of wisdom, unawakened mind, lack of wisdom. I mean, we can, we can create a whole world that is, I mean, societies do this, that is based on all kinds of false views, fears, and prejudices. I mean, every civilization, every culture, every tribal group has their own prejudices and, and biases, don't they? Like, tribal people, um, they they some they some, they have a respect for the natural laws oftentimes, but on the human plane they can be quite uh, uncompassionate, eating the tribe next to them. That's no, that wasn't uncommon at one time with cannibalism. Wasn't you didn't eat your own tribe ever? That was forbidden. But the next tribe you could eat. <laughs> well, now we 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 think well, what a horrible thing to do. But yet, if you were brought up with that avicca, with from that avicca position, then the sankaras would be you you when you saw the people from the next tribe, you'd start 
salivate here. When you read about uh, the the beginnings of civilization and the, the um, in the in Sumer and the the way that kings were originally for sacrifice to God, I mean, you the kings were originally to be sacrificed physically uh, and could uh, probably even a, a bit of cannibalism involved. You know, you can see where the Holy Communion of the Catholic Church came from. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they do, isn't it? In every Sunday or every day, in fact, Catholic churches, they eat the king. The eat his blood, eat, eat his flesh, drink his blood. We were, I was brought up in the High Anglican Church, and we believe that. You're actually eating the flesh of of Jesus and drinking his blood, <coughs> and it it's transubstantiated in in a certain point in the mass. A priest, an ordained priest, has somehow the power to change what is ordinary bread and and wine into the flesh and the blood of Jesus Christ, which you eat. Isn't that true in the Roman Catholic Church, Sister Josephine? Well, in the high, ch high Anglican Church, <laughs> High Anglican Church, uh, we used to do believe the very same thing, <clears throat> and that can be traced back to the, the sacrificial cults in in the in the Mesopotamia and in Egypt. The Egyptian pharaohs originally were were that, or the for sacrifice, religious sacrifice. And then, obviously, one of them got wise to it and started changing it around a bit where they sacrificed somebody else. <laughs> and, then, and then the animals. And then, finally, yeah, that was uh, eventually stopped. But still, there's animal sacrifices being done in it in India in Nepal in that these Shivite festivals where they where they uh, slaughter uh, goats by the thousands. So we can see that Abhicha Bhajaya Sankara that's the way the world is. The world view is that that you appease the, this powerful universe that's around you by giving something you love and respect back to it. Isn't it? That's what religious sacrifices are for. They're not just uh, callous, uh, uh, brutal uh, things done out of out of a kind of reptilian cold-heartedness. But it, they're actually to try to sacrifice something very dear, something you love, uh, to back to the god or the god or the goddess, in order to appease because. We do find ourselves in this, in these rather delicate and and vulnerable forms, bodies, 
in a universe which has tremendous power and mystery to it, doesn't it? It's so powerful. Just the wind here, standing out on the field the other morning, just where the wind was the strongest, you felt this tremendous power in the universe, and you wondered. I wondered where does this, where does all this power come from? This, this, this incredible wind blowing on me. And you can feel it, especially at night, on the Clint's beautiful night out. The mystery of the, of the stars and the, the, the vast spaces. So human beings, we've, from the primitive uh, levels up to modern uh, civilized, modern civilization, is, is this wonder at the mystery of it all. And religion, of course, is an attempt to try to to comprehend the mystery in some way, or to uh, not not to comprehend it, at least to to accept the mystery of it. <coughs> because what is it all about? It is mind-boggling, isn't it? When you when you look at the universe from the position of a human being on a planet, it is so beyond anything we can really understand in, in the limited conceptions, percepts that we have with our little brains and their, and their ability to, to form ideas and percepts. So what happens is that we tend to create a world that we get, that we, that we can live in and feel uh, some sense of safety or security within that little world, that little realm that we make up. And it can be a very m- measly, poverty-stricken little world, can't it? Say, like, like I used to feel that from my background, the, the middle-class white, American middle-class white of the 1940s and 50s, to me was the most poverty-stricken, small-minded little world. It was so revolting to me that I'd do almost anything to get out of it. And yet my family, everybody wanted me to fit right into it. Into that, in the 1950s, white middle-class world. Which people around me said is the real world. This is, you're, you're fortunate to be born into this middle class. You're fortunate to be white. And you're very fortunate to live in the, in the United States. The greatest country in the whole world. And, <laughs> and you're, you're, you, you can do anything you want. You can, you can, and you get lots of money. You can make lots of money. You can get rich. They have all these stories about Andrew Carnegie and so forth, coming over from Scotland, broke, without a penny in his pocket, and becoming a millionaire. So the idea of becoming even President of the United States, becoming the top from, and all these advantages, this little world um, say, that, that my mind was conditioned with, say, during the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Now, that somehow was a... 
to me a, a, a world that I was quite glad to destroy. I mean, I had no, no desire to, to hold on or to try to keep that world alive. It didn't, it didn't appeal to me. It, it, I found it so mean, so wanting, so dreary, that to think of spending the rest of my life thinking like that and acting like that for the rest of my life was so painful that, that I thought anything would be better. Being an alcoholic, a drug addict, drug addict or suicide or anything would be better than that. And yet, so many people thought that was the, the way to be. Most of my, my friends from high school they had no, no inclination to get outside of it, but wanted to conform and fit right into it and get all the goodies that it promises, that it promised at that time. And what surprised me, how few human beings really long to know the truth, really are willing to, to put forth some effort and risk in their lives to find out. Because you are, you're, it is a risk, isn't it? You might fail, you might, you might really go off the track, get lost. Going into the unknown, in the uncertain, and into the mystery. Because this is, this is not a course charted with, with maps and, and guarantees that of anything other than you, that, that if you are willing to sacrifice everything, then you'll find out the truth. Whatever that might be. Maybe it's not worth finding out. Maybe it's better to build a nice little world of each abhajaya sankara, of, of a cozy little cottage in <coughs> a coterie of beloved friends. And uh, we used to have these, I used to call them the New Hampshire uh, fantasies. New Hampshire, is a, to me, was a place in, in the United States where you'd like to go to get away from everything, like Devon here. And you, you know, I think the, the ideal kind of New Hampshire fantasy world, where you, you, you have the, the ideal wife and children, you know, uh, a wife who's a good cook. That's important. When I was married, my wife was a horrible cook. <laughs> I thought, never would I marry a woman who couldn't cook, ever. And the, <laughs> and, and the idea of having this, this uh, organic food farm, organic grown vegetables, health foods, and, and you know, these children would be rosy-cheeked and healthy and happy and they'd say daddy and mommy and they'd be polite like English children do not like Americans and you'd live <coughs> on organic carrots and, and live happily ever after kind of <laughs> ideal this is a thinking of all say the, the worldly life say uh, the, the, the good things of life that you can kind of fantasize about where you put them all together and you get this idealistic picture of 
uh, of a, a kind of uh, paradise. Where you go, you, 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 your children would never, you never, would never have a mongoloid or a retarded child, or uh, they, they, all your children would be intelligent, bright, beautiful, healthy, all the, the perfect children, the wife, the perfect wife, and the, the play beautiful country scene and uh, living happily. And that's a, a fantasy of, of uh, that one might think, wouldn't it be nice if, if life could be like that? But then you're, you're always afraid that it wouldn't wouldn't go like that. Things can go wrong, and and uh, you can have moles in your gardens, and your carrots get eaten up by the rabbits, and your wife runs away with the milkman. <laughs> or with a gambler from Mississippi. So you can fantasize about all the possible, possible things that can go wrong, too. <coughs> so this world is, is the, the world that we create, isn't it? It's, we can create a fantasy, uh, an idealistic world, where everything, everybody's happy, everybody's smiling, everybody, everything is wonderful. And then, then we can create a world where everything goes wrong. Everything falls apart. Everything you love disappears or dies or decays or disintegrates. You're left alone, hungry and old, unwanted, unloved, out in the cold. <coughs> Investigation of the world then is, is, is not a judgment. We're not, we're not judging and and uh, condemning anything in it, even the even the negative side, we're not judging as bad, as absolutely bad. We're just noticing how things are, so that we, when we look at suffering, when we when we begin to open ourselves to dukkha, then we begin to see the way to not create these false worlds these imaginary worlds, these conditioned worlds, we let them cease. They cease. The world ceases. The world ends. Now what happens when your world ends? And so this is where you, the psych, the psych, when I point to the fact of the psychological approach of Buddhism, it's talking about the mind. When when you, when me and mine, I am, ends, what's left? When thought, where thought ceases and, the, and all the attachments and the, and the views and prejudices and fears cease in your mind, what's left? And when you, when you realize the empty mind with its brightness, clarity, wisdom, knowledge, It's light, it's an enlightened mind, it's, it's clear, there's intelligence. And there's no need to create an, a world out of avicca anymore when, the, when, you, when you reach the pure mind, the pure heart. There's no need to create 
these false realms and all these these little worlds, these sankharas that we that we produce out of avicca, not knowing anything about it, not having looked at anything, just being conditioned by the culture we we happen to be born in, by the family, by the class, and all of this, and we never if we never question, look at it, examine it, then we tend to believe, and the whole rest of our life is just variations on that same old theme of Icha Bhajaya Sankara, Sankara Bhajaya Vinyanang and onwards in a cycle. It just goes around and around. So when it gets to Jati Jaramara Nang Soka Pariteva Tukatomanasa Upayasa, then you seek rebirth again in the same world. You try to, to find uh, to get reborn into that little world that you think is safe, that you that you want to be real, that you call the real world, so that so much of the human uh, suffering is involved in this continuous seeking of rebirth and in, in, in these false worlds, wanting the same support. And when look how people get very threatened when their little worlds, these narrow little worlds, are threatened. We can, we can react, the nicest people, the most civilized, decent kind of citizens of, of Britain or America can become downright monsters when their world is being threatened by somebody else. Kill them! Get rid of them! They're going to destroy our world. I, I grew up in a in a um, a play a suburb in Seattle, which was all white, middle class, kind of respectable type of white people, Protestants. I think there were a few kind of Roman Catholics were highly questionable <laughs> in those days. That was before Kennedy. A lot of Jewish people, though, middle-class Jewish people. And there is, uh, and it was all very safe up to, uh, say, uh, on that level. If, if it was, there was uh, any, any attempt by a, uh, any other race, uh, either black or oriental, to move into it was, well, the kind of, was stopped. Remember, you hear rumors about a, Filipino family trying to buy a house and suddenly, you know, and somehow indignation would arise and prevent it, and get the, make it impossible for them to buy the house. You didn't want, you let Filipinos in your neighborhood, you don't know what was going to happen. This idea of, uh, of keeping it very safe and the, and the, and the, and these people were all quite, you know, religious, civilized, well-off, well-educated, middle-class white people. They weren't barbarians, but they could be barbarians when the security and safety of their narrow-minded little world was threatened. Even though it wasn't really being threatened, actually, it was, they thought it was. If something different would come into it, and they might, it might not be so good something strange, something alien, 
something foreign, something that didn't fit into the very rigid patterns that you were used to and that you depended on for security. So when black people started moving in in the 50s, that was when the the white people started moving out. They couldn't stop. They couldn't stop it anymore. And people were really being very nasty about it. Because they, they didn't want, because black people represented the unknown, the alien. What you weren't sure, they weren't how, what they would do, what their habits would be, what they might, what might happen. So good Christians could become real monsters, narrow-minded, unkind, cruel uh, monsters, just because their 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 world that they they depended on was being threatened, when it really wasn't. Nothing wrong. Eventually, people that did stand in the neighborhood found that it it was all right. It wasn't that any 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 really any that that much different. Because <coughs> the black people that were moving in were all middle class black people trying to be like middle class white people. <laughs> oh, what a relief! <laughs> But I remember contemplating this and wondering why? Why does it? Why do people act like this? When they, when uh, being a religious person, even then, when I was a teenager, I was a very devout Christian. Actually, <coughs> I couldn't understand how people could, who were supposed to be following uh, these Christian teachings, could um, act like that. I really couldn't. Couldn't understand it. And so one tended to think it was because one tended to blame Christianity, that it wasn't really, uh, you know, it was just people just said they believed it, but it really was, nobody really believed it, because when it came to actually being Christian, people weren't. They were anything but. I can imagine Jesus Christ selling his house because a black man moved in. <laughs> Well, we experienced that uh, in the Chitters, didn't we? The Mrs. Mallory and uh, that crew of people. They, this, it's, it's a common human pattern, isn't it? We can even see those tendencies in ourselves when we become very attached to a way of doing something or a particular style. Or in monasticism, you can become you can become very much like that. We've got if anything threatens it or uh, changes it in any way, we can become very uh, frightened, panic-stricken, and react very badly. <coughs> We've got to keep the purity of our order. We must, we must protect ourselves at all costs. The purity of our tradition must be protected. We can't let anyone into this place if we feel they're threatening the purity of our tradition. We've got to We've got to do kind of checks on them. 
make sure that they they're, they're acceptable to it. We could become a real snobbish uh, cult. But that's creating a, a, a that's, that's avicca bhajaya sankara, isn't it? A monastic cult uh, with with ideas that we've got that we are here to protect it, and we've got to to uh, make sure that we we defend it at all costs. But the Buddhist teaching was one where that the, these conventions that we use are conventions alone. It, Buddha made it very, very clear in, I mean, of any religion that exists. I can't imagine how it could be more clear than the Buddhist teaching of conventional reality and ultimate truth. The Paramatta Satcha, or ultimate reality, and the uh, Samutta Satcha, the conventional reality. <coughs> so you're not just saying that conventional reality is an illusion. You're saying it's real on a conven- as a convention. Conventions are like this. These are conventions. They're, they're all... Uh, the learning how to use conventions is not avicca-bhajaya-sankhara. Using conventions with wisdom, mindfulness, is not avicca-bhajaya-sankhara. But clinging to conventions as if they were ultimately real is the avicca-bhajaya-sankhara. Clinging to the conditions and the conventions as if they were ultimately real, the real world. And that is, that starts, the, that is the, the process going to, uh, from avicca to sokapariteva tukatoma nasa upayasa. And then rebirth again, seeking, seeking to get reborn again into into a safe little niche, into a world you can depend on that has to be affirmed and protected and defended. Or notice as you're exploring your mind more and more, you're opening to the mystery, (coughs) to the totality, to the unknown. That's why (coughs) I've been trying to suggest that these are the very signs you must open yourself to, to fear. You must open yourself to fear and terror and the dark and the mystery and the wonder and the unknown and the uh, feeling of being alone, the fear of being alone, rejected and lost in the dark, the black hole, in the cold, in a, a, a helpless, uh, vulnerable human in a vast, mysterious universe that's very powerful and very mysterious. And in these rather delicate little forms, we, we open ourselves to the whole of it. And that is what, when we begin to let go of these desires for security, for safety, for, for stability, for all, the, all forms of desire, letting go, letting everything go, letting the world cease, the cessation of the world, the world ends. 
Now, if you're really attached to the view that you are this delicate body, and that you've got to protect it because uh, it's you, then, of course, you are going to be frightened by all of this. The idea of being alone and the dark and, the, and to look out. I remember looking out in the night skies and you know, sometimes feeling just totally kind of frustrated by it because it seemed so mysterious and, and, and I couldn't figure it out. What was it all about? What is it all about anyway? Being born like this in these, in, where you have to feel pain for a lifetime. You know, there's so much pain, physical pain, in from the day you're born, from the moment you're born to the time you die. There's always discomfort, pain, and hunger, thirst. It's part of our human experience, isn't it? Why? Why do we get born like this? Just to experience pain, hunger, thirst, old age, sickness, death. Is it a, is it a, a cosmic bad joke? Was God just trying to be funny? They ha ha. Joke's on you. You got born again. In <laughs> so when anybody says you can have you can you can you can eat any of the fruit on these trees here all of them are yours except that one there that apple tree there you can't you can't eat those apples but all the rest are yours and then, of course, the only tree you can ever think of is the one. <laughs> and so God says, ha ha, the joke's on you. <laughs> is there any way, more way, uh, m- uh, more uh, to point and say, Point something as being important that we that we can't help we can't stop thinking about is by saying you can't have it. And it's human nature, isn't it? The forbidden fruit is always the most tantalizing. <coughs> the fruit that's allowable. <laughs> <laughs> Until you understand the mind, isn't it? When you really look and investigate and see how your mind works, then it doesn't matter anymore with something forbidden or, or you're quite willing to let it be forbidden. You know that apples on the forbidden tree no doubt are just the same as the ones on the allowable tree. There isn't that much difference, is there, between, I mean, how, how different can an apple get? if you really explored and looked at the limitations of sensory experience and the conventional world and the sensory realm, it loses its, its fascination, doesn't it? You're no longer expecting it to, to provide uh, some kind of wonderful, new, exciting experience that you haven't had yet. I remember uh, when I was young, I used to look at, I always wondered, what was on the other side of the hill? 
and I see like the, the hill, the crest of the hill. I wonder what's on the other side of the hill. I mean, it's curious because where I am on this side of the hill, and then the mind sees that there's, there's a hill, and on the other side where you can't see, there's something over there. I wonder what's over there. And so <coughs> you see a winding path. And wonder what's on that path. Oh, it, it winds, it curves, goes off there, here. you can't see. I can see around here, but I can't see over there. I want to go on this path, find out where, where it takes you. It might be some new, exciting experience, something I haven't experienced or seen yet, something new and wonderful. Discovery. Discovery of life. And this is, say, at a certain age, uh, appropriate kind of uh, curiosity. But now when I see the crest of the hill, I know what's on the other side. I don't have to go and look. Or what's on the, around the, around the curve on the path. And so the, the curiosity of having to go and look and find out and taste the forbidden fruit and, and try to solve all the mysteries, that falls away as you begin to understand the mind. But then what is left is an openness to the total mystery. It's no longer me trying to, to find out the truth. But there is a, a feeling of, of relinquishment, of sacrifice of self-views, self-involvement, and the willingness to open oneself humbly, to be very humble, and to, to with, with, with faith and trust to the unknown and the mysterious, without asking it for, without looking for to see what it, not, not trying to find out what it's all about, because you know the only thing you, we can do with it in the position we're in is open to it. That, that, that's, that's the lesson we must learn as human beings, to humbly accept the position, the limitations we find ourselves under within these bodies and the mentality we have. Accept that, humbly accept that with gratitude and open it toward the unknown, to the mysterious, to the mystery. For fear, we're cowardly, we run away, seeking rebirth in a cozy little scene, or the old, the old thing, the old habit, the old friend. Take me back to the good old days. Wish I could wish I could go back to the good old days. The times where everything was were certain and you could you know, the social stability. You didn't have all these foreigners around, all these Americans. You know, what, you know, bringing into Britain all these these new fangled ideas from America and then all these foreigners coming to live here and you don't can't trust, you don't know who's going to do what. Let's go back to the good old days. The kind of conservative attitude. Or let's try to make this society into, into something we like, we want. Let's have a revolution. 
I, I don't like it the way it is. I want it to be like the way I want it to be. Let's have a revolution and, and then we'll, we'll get all the power and then we can force everything to be like I want it to be. It's another extreme. Most people just settle for just getting through with kind of mesmerizing themselves with telly and <coughs> just getting on till they die in some kind of mediocre way. And the religious person, and the religious seeker, the seeker, is, is willing to pay the price, take the risk, make the sacrifice. This is very much what I appreciate with all of you, is that you're obviously willing to do that. So when we talk about rebirth, I'm not talking about when, when this body dies, what I might get reborn as. I'm talking about the mental, the psychological process of avicca bhajaya sanghara, of going back to hang on to something, to get reborn, absorb into some old thing, into something that I attach to or like or want, or want to hold on to. So I just, every time I, I mean, when, when one is frightened, what do you do when you're frightened? What do, you, what do you tend to seek? What do you run to when you're frightened or anxious? Notice that. That's what you'll be reborn in. <laughs> Some people eat, don't they? So we have, we have restrictions on eating. People just eat, 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 eat when they get anxious. Probably be reborn as pigs in the next Some people, when we're, we're upset or frightened by anything, we, what, we look for, turn on the light, switch on the light, or, or read a book, or do something, you know, to, to get away from it. Find security and safety in the known, in, in something we know. Something we can, we can absorb into quickly, get reborn into very quickly, because fear is such a threat to us. In meditation, then, fear is not to be run away, not to run away, but to examine it. And to examine fear means you have to accept it as it is. You can't make fear, I'm only examining you if you change yourself into something I'm not frightened of. <laughs> you have to accept it with all it, its ferocious appearance. And threatening qualities. Embrace it like a, a beast. Embracing the beast. In order to really look and know it for what it is. So, so in the, in say here in the, in this retreat, we, we have Security, yes, don't we? we? Everything is going very well, and and uh, 
even the weather has been extraordinarily pleasant for January. But no matter what happens for the rest of this retreat, if, it, if we have a Siberian freeze, another hurricane, whatever, bandits raid the place, the communists attack, or we just have a pleasant, very pleasant uh, time for two months, it's still, we're, we're accepting all of it. We're learning from all of it. During this retreat, I'm trying to make it as pleasant as possible for you. I don't, I think it's working. I like so far what's happening because you don't have that kind of tense uh, uh, look that you usually have on these retreats. <laughs> So my, my intention is to make it as pleasant and as uh, pleasant an experience as possible. <coughs> Not to make it easy and, and, and so that, and, and, and just for the sake of ease, but to, to try to open yourself to investigation when you're not feeling that you have to get somewhere or do something or, or prove something or become something. Isn't that what happens a lot of times? You feel you've got to get there prove to Ajahn Sumedho that you can do this. I'm going to, going to make you made your aditana at the beginning, and you're going to keep it. And as you fall over, you know, you get a lot, a lot of people get sick and, and just can't keep up, can they? There's so much striving to become, which is some, which is. I even encourage sometimes in our retreats to kind of sock it to them, get in there and fight. And this, uh, trying this approach, because when, the, when one feels a sense of calm and ease, your reflective mind is really very sharp. You feel you're not, you're not, you're not fighting or resisting things, you're not trying to get anything. Uh, but you're, you're, you feel calm and relaxed enough to contemplate Dhamma. And that's, that's, very, that's, that's what I really want you to do, is to, is to take these Dhamma teachings and contemplate them, and apply them to your own experience, to the way things are, the way your mind is, what's happening to you, whatever way it is. So tonight is the, I thought we'd have the, a practice till midnight, it's the half moon, the last quarter moon phase, and uh, so that uh, you're all invited to practice with me till midnight. And then who knows what will happen, whether Midnight. Well, I think we all know what happens at midnight.
by reflecting on the Paticca Samuppada, we recognize that the results of a physical birth are that there's consciousness in this, what is consciousness is always the word used for um, that which uh, arises as subject and object. In other words, that the, the, the moment of consciousness is always when the subject and the object uh, contact, when the con- object contacts the subject and consciousness arises. So consciousness is a word that needs to be particularly aligned with that relationship, subject to object. It's not like a, we don't mean it as kind of like a, a universal consciousness, as a kind of soul or some kind of soul-like force. But think of vijnana as, uh, as the word vijnana, Pali word, as that to be conscious there has to, there has to be some kind of separation, doesn't there? There has to be birth, in other words, to be conscious. Which is the the uh, subject now, now say being being in a separate form like this, we're in, in the seemingly separateness of having our own eyes and ears and and uh, tongue and nose and all this, and we we're conscious through these organs. Then awareness isn't does doesn't imply an object. Uh, so much as as ability for the mind to be to be just an alertness, awakenness. Um, and so one can 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 contemplate consciousness, sensory consciousness, just like looking at those candles or the, the shrine. You realize that there's there's consciousness. Now that's what consciousness is, is the eye contacting the flame. And there's eye consciousness of the flame. Ability to, to see and, and before you name it as anything or perceive it as anything, there's consciousness. Then as the, then as the consciousness, uh, vijnana bhajaya namarupa, then it becomes, uh, namarupa is a, all corporality mentality, so it becomes more designated into, in from consciousness towards, perce- uh, towards rupa, vedana, sanya, sankara, perception in, in different different uh, levels of, of uh, mental formation, and, and then that is uh, that the ability of the say the, the, the active forms of the body and the and the mind or the, the physicality and corporeality mentality start operating which is then the the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, the salayatana contact with the objects, pasa and Vedana. So in this in this uh, term vijnana, it it always implies that the that this that out of ignorance, out of avicca, then 
then, uh, then that conditions the, the sankaras or the, the, the inclination, the tension to make something more uh, out, of, out of ignorance, of, of, of uh, not seeing things clearly, not knowing the truth. One tends to, uh, whatever one is, uh, say, doing or feeling or experiencing is, is not exactly what it is anymore. It's something else. It's the sankara something added, something pushed onto it, something distorted in the, in the, in the angle toward it. And that affects <coughs> the consciousness, which is also implied in Namarupa and Salayatana Pasa, that whole, that whole conscious experience of consciousness through ignorance. So there's, say, consciousness through avicca, and that's what when when we when we don't understand the four noble truths and there are three aspects and twelve stages, or we don't we have not in, had insight into all sape sankarani cha sape tamanata, then then this paticca samuppada operates. There's Avicca bhajaya sankara sankara bhajaya vinyana vinyana bhajaya namarupang and it goes on like that and it and it's never questioned never never seen never uh, investigated one can live one's whole life with avicca influencing consciousness and so when it gets to vedana the feeling the feeling, the attractive, repulsive, or the, the attractive, unattractive, neutral <coughs> experience of the sense, sense world, then it becomes, then there's dunha, because Vedana conditions uh, Vedana Bhajaya Dunha, or desire, desire for, for the object if it's attractive, uh, desire to become something, or power done or desire to get rid of something. And that desire then, dhanha bhajaya upadana. Now upadana is the clinging, grasping tendency. It is most important to contemplate this grasping tendency for out of ignorance we grasp at things. We're always grasping desire. And desires compared to fire, it's like grasping fire, something that burns, isn't it? Only you don't realize it burns. You're so used to being burned by your desires, you, you, you wonder why you suffer. You say, it's because you're grasping fire. Then you, then you say, well, I won't grasp fire anymore. It hurts too much. But you have to investigate. You have to really see that, know that. Because desire... Is, it can seem like something very, very lovely to grasp, isn't it? it can, desires aren't, uh, can, can be much more kind of subtle than just fire. The desires can be, uh, you know, very real to us and very much me and mine. And so when desires grasp, then there's, then there's, uh, becoming, you become, there's the becoming of that desire and what you're grasping. So we're becoming things all the time through avicca, 
sankara, dana upadana bhava. We're always, we're always becoming whatever we're grasping. If you really observe, what is the self? It's, a, it's always becoming something. It's, it's not, you have a perception maybe of, a, uh, of yourself as being a kind of permanent person or character, don't we? We all have a, an assumption we make, which, is a, which is an assumption is, is a percept. That somehow I'm always been, uh, ever since I've been ordained, I've been tomato bigger. Before that was Robert Jackman, and I've been this kind of, I've been this person for all my life. I have memories, and I, I have a birth certificate, can prove that I was born, and that I was christened, and that I'm this person from this family, and that <coughs> gives a sense of continuity to the whole process of, uh, say, from birth to the present moment, and somehow I have been the same person that whole time. But when you really examine consciousness and investigate, what do you find? You find that you're, you're ju- there's just a series of becoming, and, bir- and then jati, birth, into, into that, becoming and, and being reborn as a happy person, jealous person, as a frightened person, as a fulfilled person, as an unfulfilled person, as, as a restless, uh, discontented person, as a greedy person, as a grudge-bearing person, uh, and, uh, and it changes all the time. When, when can I find any point in my life that was ever the same, that I was ever the same person? I can assume that I was always the same person while all that was going on, but actually, if you observe that when there's when consciousness is being affected, conditioned by avicca, then then this uh, one is always becoming something. There's always this becoming going on, restless movement of desire. Now, desire. The very nature of desire is, is it's always going towards something. Desire never is contented with itself. It's impossible for a desire to be contented with itself and to stop. It's always, it goes always toward anything. If you're identified with desire and you, you're, you're attached to desire as yourself and you're still operating from avicca, of course, you have to be to see desire as yourself, then you're always, you're always going towards something else. Just notice here on this retreat of how the suffering here comes from always wanting to get something or get on to the next thing, that getting caught in that movement of desire, waiting for something, waiting for the, for the bell to ring, or, or trying to get some state. Maybe you had a previous hour, you had a very nice uh, blissful meditation. You want to have that again. But you just, what did I do? I did down the Ponasati for 10 minutes, kept my eyes open, squeezed my anus, (laughs) 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 so you do all that and nothing happens.
wanting because you're attached to to a to a memory, don't you? Say a, say a pleasant experience. You have a memory. Say last night I had a wonderful meditation. I was just absolutely blissed out. It was so wonderful. And that 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 kind of thinking and the attachment to that memory of the sanya, the memory. That's what I want again. And so when you sit down, you're aiming at trying to <coughs> have happiness or have bliss. So there's dana upadana bhava, isn't it? And you're trying to to get something, or some achieve something that you remember as being very pleasant, some desirable experience that you would like to have again. So then you're always being frustrated. Sometimes you might get it, sometimes you don't. But you, you can't, you know, you, but it, the idea of, of getting it and keeping it becomes, can be uh, a strong motivation to do it to sit and to try to, 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 uh, to have those blissful experiences. But with reflection, you're noticing how the whole process, you're not you're not after bliss or tranquility, happiness anymore. Let go of all that, that, that inclination of wanting or doing anything in order to become happy or to be peaceful, trying to get peacefulness or, or tranquility. Just learn to, to, uh, to really notice that in what, what, your, what your jitta is like when you're, when you're sitting here. Is there, is there a, you know, do you really want to, to be find some kind of tranquility in now. Try to have a, a peaceful hour. What does it feel like to want peace or want to, to get something? What is desire really like? Know it, know it and, and understand desire, dhamma. Uh, so that you're it doesn't delude you. You can see it, you can and you don't you're no longer attached to it when it arises. You're aware of it as what it, or what it is. When you attach to desire, then you, you practice letting go of it. It's like noticing that attachment to desire, reflecting on attachment. What is attachment? What is it? What is it like being attached to a desire? attached to something, you become that way. Whatever you, whatever you desire, you become like that. But becoming, and then power conditions starting or the rebirth, so you're being reborn again into something which will change. I mean, you, even in, if you have a good desire, you want to be happy, you grasp happiness, you become happy, you're reborn as a happy person and then happiness takes you to despair because happiness is not permanent. So the happiness and then sokapariteva tukatomanasa upayasa. And so then you have then avicca bhajaya sankara again. You try to you try to you start over again with uh, trying to, to grasp something else. It's a, a, the, so that this, this, this physical, psycho, 
uh, this, this formation uh, that has been born with its eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, mind, consciousness and feeling in the sensory world uh, where the, there's uh, sense objects, where there's things to see and sounds to listen to and so forth. If it's always, if one is, is always uh, coming from avicca, then there's, there's the end of it always is death and despair. There's always despair. See, regard despair as a kind of mental death. And the word death is a physical thing. This is how I like to when I talk about death, I mean the physical death, like the body God. But despair, to me, is death. It's a, it's a kind of mental death, where you sense of, I mean, it's the end, it's what happens when you're attached to, to, uh, to desire while the body is alive. You're always going to end up with despair. And so because of that, you always have to keep getting away from it, because uh, you, what makes you happy today doesn't make you happy all the time, does it? You get bored, you feel disappointed, despair. So you have to look for something else. You have to keep being reborn again mentally, looking for different possibilities for absorption. Just uh, be going from this to that, seeking the next interesting thing to do. Doing just giving yourself totally to some some new thing, some new object. Um, or some people can can even live in total misery if they're making lots of money. The idea that they can somehow be rich making lots of money can be uh, can, can motivate people. And even though they're utterly miserable, they still are willing to bear with the misery. To be attached to the perception of being somebody who makes lots of money. To have that, that perception of oneself somehow is an unimportant person. There are lots of money. I don't like to think that way. But I do have the consolation of being considered a successful man. Thank you.
So that this is these perceptions of what we want to be remembered as in, in our lives. I want to be remembered as what people will you know, want to be remembered as writers. They write novels or poetry or paint or um, do things or try to get their names uh, become uh, have some kind of name for oneself so one can be remembered after we die as being someone who did something, achieved something, attained something. Our society very much encourages this and the society makes itself special. what we experience. We tend to seek out or be attracted to or shine for those very Thank you. 
So it ceases. So what you're allowing is the cessation. And then, then that, that whole process doesn't arise again. You've actually allowed that which arises to be. And that is the natural way, whatever arises ceases. This is the law of nature. It's not a person. It's, uh, it's as it is, whatever arises ceases. Where the with avicca bhajaya santara, with the with the ignorant conditioning of everything, then you're not letting anything cease. You're merely going around in the vata samsara or the cycle. You keep the, whatever you whatever you you, you know you you with the with the dana upadana power process, the desire grasping and becoming and rebirth. Then you're you're always going into the next. You're never letting anything go. You're always pushing aside or getting rid of, grasping or getting rid of things, picking and choosing, and that becomes what we call blind habit. Just a condition. Uh, the mind is just conditioned to react to things. So you're not letting things flow and move according to their nature, to the way they really are, the way things are. You you're 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 imposing onto to the way things are something else as a sankara avicca bhajaya sankara so there's always this imposition this additive this there's something extra that interferes and intends to blind and prevent us from seeing things as they are so we tend to suffer by all the things we create and complicate and add to the way things are. Now just notice in, as you're sitting here, if you're really with the way it is, there's no suffering. Even if you're in pain, you, you're, you're can accept the pain. Uh, you can, you, uh, if you're really totally accepting and mindful, fully conscious and mindful using wisdom, then there's no suffering. You're not making anything, adding anything on to this moment. It's just as it is. It's suction. The tatada, the as isness. So contemplate this as is, just this way. It's like this. And then, like, say, looking at the Buddha and the shrine, directly across by consciousness. There's consciousness there. I can reflect on the fact that that's I consciousness. So reflection means that I'm actually uh, acknowledging this. It doesn't have to be called anything, but just for, you don't have to call it I consciousness, in fact. But it's just a reflection. It's not a, it's not a grasping of some idea. It's a noticing. And if I'm just with that alone, consciousness isn't suffering, is it? But if if I start grasping this uh, at it with wanting, you know, wanting to 
you know, starting looking at what's wrong. If I don't like this, don't like that, then then I uh, then I start suffering. But if I'm just with it as it is and, and mindful, then I'm adding nothing to it. It's as it is, and one can can, can abide in that in that emptiness of mind where things are as they are. One is no longer following the tendency to have a different to react to it. Now, before, I don't remember having the 